Hello, and thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host, and it is great to have your company once again. Coming up on this episode, it's a jam-packed episode. Uh, a coronal mass ejection has destroyed a bunch of Starlink satellites, and, uh, yeah, that's um, been a bit of bad news. Uh, we'll talk about that and why it happened. And a rocket body is about to hit the moon. Uh, and uh, it's not got anything to do with Starlink, so uh, completely different uh, scenario there. Uh, but uh, on the good news front, the James Webb Space Telescope has snapped its first image, uh, and it wasn't a selfie, although I think it's done that too. And uh, a third Earth-like planet has been found orbiting Proxima Centauri. We will also tackle some audience questions uh, about hitching a ride on a passing object to help us get where we want to go to save fuel. I like the idea. Uh, Ralph's having trouble with his telescope. You should never have pulled it apart, Ralph. I'm telling you right now. And Peter uh, wondered what we would go back in time to witness some kind of astronomical event. If we could make a choice of one, what would it be? So uh, that's a great what-if type of question. Love what-if questions. That's all coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me, as always, is the great man himself, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I am quite well, feeling uh, very re refreshed after a, a little trip. Judy and I did a, a little journey down to Melbourne. Uh, we saw a bit of cricket. We went to Brighton Beach, walked to St Kilda, uh, saw the, the ladies' cricket, the international between Australia and, uh, and England. Then we went to Hobart and uh, did a bit of sightseeing there, went to a, a gallery, which you can get to by ferry. And this was a really strange ferry, Fred. Um, the seats were sheep. Oh. <laughs> the seats were sheep. I, I did feel a bit sheepish uh, taking such a seat. Of course. Um, there was an expensive section of the boat for other people. We didn't have the money for that, but I wouldn't sit on the, um, on the sheep because I felt sheepish about doing that. And I found out why they put the sheep on the ferry. It was so that they could achieve ramming speed. Oh, gosh. Sorry, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes, Fred. Uh, and, and I also found out that they are merino sheep. Okay, Get there it? you go. Yeah, merino I do merino, sheep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you bet. <laughs> any, any more, any more? <laughs> you, you bet there are. Oh, I bet there are too, yeah. You've got to think about it. Uh, how are you, Fred? By the way, <laughs> uh, oh, fine, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, on a night schedule at the moment because I'm attending yeah, a. You, you were at a conference, virtual conference last night. I was, and we'll be at it again tonight. This is um, a, a meeting of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which I've been attending as one of Australia's delegates. Wow! Uh, and in fact, did a That's presentation. Big stuff. It is. It's grown-up stuff, is that? I did a presentation last <laughs> night on uh, on our efforts in keeping our skies dark and quiet. Yeah, which is very difficult to do. Uh, it it, it <laughs> at is. The moment. It is at the moment. Yeah, but mm. it's all right. We're we're, we're working on it. 
Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, speaking of which, um, we have heard in the recent news of a coronal mass ejection that has uh, destroyed a bunch of Starlink satellites. Uh, what exactly happened? Yeah, this was at the beginning of February, I think. The Yes, Thursday the 3rd of February at 1.13pm Eastern Standard Time in the US, Falcon 9 launched 49 satellites to low Earth orbit. Um, but... Unfortunately, uh, there was a geomagnetic storm the following day. Uh, and you, you will remember, Andrew, that the Starlink satellites, when they're launched, they're in this string of satellites yes. uh, as they ascend to their orbital height and disperse to their orbital shells. Um, uh, so they were still in that process. In other words, at a fairly low altitude, around about 200 kilometres, when this mm. geomagnetic storm hit. Now, it's not the geomagnetic storm itself that um, kills the spacecraft. It's the fact that it fluffs, uh, the, the storm fluffs up the atmosphere. It causes the atmosphere to warm and oh. atmospheric density to increase. Uh, and in fact, um, the, you know, the, the, the um, sensors on the spacecraft uh, and the telemetry from those spacecraft showed that the atmospheric drag increased by up to 50% more than it had been before. Um, and that uh, was a serious problem. So uh, what the Starlink team did was put the spacecraft into a safe mode. So they're flying sort of edge on to minimize drag. Um, but the the net result is this uh, of this is that up to 40 of the satellites didn't make it. They either will re-enter or, or have already re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. And, of course, with zero risk, uh, these things, well, they weigh a quarter of a tonne. They're not small, but they're mm. certainly small enough to burn up completely in the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, yeah, actually, and um, my quote from SpaceX's website on this, it says, this unique situation demonstrates the great lengths the Starlink team has gone to to ensure the system is on the leading edge of on-orbit debris migrate mitigation. In other words, mm. they, they haven't left any bits behind. It's, uh, it's a, they, they will all have re-entered. So um, uh, unexpected, perhaps. Um, you know, it's uh, something that we I, I wouldn't have foreseen, but uh, when you're launching so many satellites... Uh, then this kind of thing is bound to take place from time to time. Yeah, it, it was going to happen at some stage or something was going to happen. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Uh, yeah to lose 40 in one go, though, that's, uh, that's uh, pretty expensive. It's isn't it? expensive stuff. I mean, fortunately, the company has deep pockets, but mm. and uh, you've only to look at what's happening with their Starliner project. Um, uh, that, that, by the way, just throwing in an aside, SpaceX is hoping to to have the first orbital launch of its Starliner, um, I think within a month. So you and I might be talking about that down the track. That's going to yeah, be really wow. spectacular. Incredible. Mm. While we're still into things not going quite right, uh, although this is not quite the same, um, a rocket body is about to hit the moon. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Now, I can't remember whether we spoke about this last we time. Did, we did yeah. mention it because I there was a project, uh, a project um, uh, asking astro, uh, yes, that's right. we did to take photos of the moon around the time that this was supposed to happen, so that it were, yes, you know, they it, might be able to find it. Yeah, it was. That's right. It was to, to get image. It was actually to get images uh, when the object flew closest to the Earth. 
yeah. to, to give a better calculation of its orbit. So you'd be able to work out from that where it was going to wind up on the far side of the moon. And yeah. um, I think that work has continued. Um, but there's been a rethink because um, everybody was cheerfully blaming Elon Musk um, uh, because it was thought that this was a Falcon 9 body from uh, a launch, actually a launch, of, I think, of a, of a solar uh, uh, research spacecraft. Um, yes. It, oh, in fact, it was the Discover uh, spacecraft launch vehicle. Discover's a, um, uh, it's an, an interesting spacecraft that sits at the L2 point and looks back at the Earth. Uh, that's The L2 point is between the Earth and the Sun, as you know. Yeah. Um, no, it's not. That's the L1 point. Sorry, L2's on the other side. Ta-da. That's right. <laughs> anyway, notwithstanding that, um, this was it's a rocket body, um, and that, uh, that launch was some years ago. Uh, but um, further calculations have been done, and it's now thought not to be a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket body, but uh, one of the remnants of the launch of China's Chang'e 5, uh, which was launched on October the 23rd, 2014. Um, and it was actually a test run for, for uh, future launches. Chang'e is the, is the um, Chinese uh, lunar exploration project. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got the, uh, the U-2 rover on the moon, on the far side of the moon at the moment. Yeah. Um, so that's, yes, yeah, so it's now thought to be uh, the Chang'e 5, in fact, it's called Chang'e 5 T1, uh, body that, um, uh, or the, the launch vehicle itself that, that launched that spacecraft. Mm. Um, just a, a footnote there that the, you know, the fact that it's going to uh, that the this rocket is going to hit the far side of the moon. It would be very unfortunate if it hit if it hit the the site of the U two rover on the far side of the moon. But it's thought that it will actually be U uh, two is right down near the southern pole of the moon on the far side this impact is expected to take place more or less in the middle of the moon's disk yeah uh, it would be terrible luck but the odds <laughs> would it? yeah. it's a bit the like the hitting target would be would be pretty remote but i mean it would be the same sort of thing as the um, as the lens cap falling off the venus probe uh, onto the onto the bit that you're trying to photograph uh, yes. which happened to one of the soviet venera probes back yep. in the 80s yeah it, it melted didn't it uh, yes, I think most of it yeah. mastered, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that was just plain bad luck, but you could you could never predict it. It was just, I, I think, an oversight of the conditions, but what can you do? Hmm. All right, uh, so that's um, that's due to happen when? Uh, well, the last date I remember is March the 4th. It may have changed, but that's um, we'll know perhaps more accurately nearer the time, but I think March okay. the 4th. So if you're a backyard astronomer, get out there and do some happy snapping and see if you can um, get some pictures of it as it gets in there. Uh, well, know. you won't because it's on the far side of the moon. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, no, by that time, Andrew, it, um, it's beyond the reach of amateur uh, telescopes. Right. It was. It yeah, was, I think they wanted the photos sometime around. Yeah, that's 15. right. A couple of. That's exactly right. That's it. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember now. Ah, uh, yeah, remember. Now, while we're talking telescopes, which we weren't, but we are now, <laughs> yes. um, oh, the James Webb Space Telescope has snapped its first image. What did it take a photo of? Oh, well, uh, it, uh, a star, a nice bright star, um, which is uh, one that was chosen. It rejoices in the name of HD 84406. 
Uh, it's in the Northern Hemisphere constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. Um, but uh, and so it's a, it's a bright star. Um, but what um, what led the NASA mission team to choose this star is it's fairly isolated uh, in that part of the sky. It's you know you're a long way from the Milky Way, uh, and so it's an isolated bright star. And what they wanted to do was uh, why did they want it isolated? Because they're going to take multiple images of this. Um, each of the 18 mirror segments makes its own image because they're not yet aligned. Uh -huh. uh, so what you get is 18 images of this star on the detector. And what, right. the last thing you'd want would be half a dozen other stars in the same field of view uh, that are confusing what it is you're looking at. Oh, now I understand what I'm looking at. Yeah, so, yeah. so um, that, that picture, Webb's uh, first star image, uh, which I think has been widely... Uh, circulated has 18 little white dots on it and each of those is one separate image of uh, hd whatever it was that star hd 84406 um, and so uh, the work that will now begin uh, is in aligning the mirror segments so that you end up with them simply forming one image and that will be you know something to look forward to because then we'll start seeing real pictures from the web. oh yeah yeah so they're going through the, the protocols to get the whole thing lined up and ready to do what it was designed to do, which is the most exciting part. But uh, still some work to be done. Uh, HD 84406. I used to work for a radio station called HD. Oh, did you? Yeah, in Newcastle, 2HD. <laughs> it was out of this world. Do you know? Oh, yes, it would have been. What did the HD stand for? Do you know? Uh, it did. Oh, now, um, I think it's the, with the initials of its founder, yeah, if I remember that's rightly. That's what, what I thought they might be. Mm. Well, maybe it could be the same because this HD it means that this star is in the Henry Draper catalogue of stars. Oh, that's what go. the HD of stands course, for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we've spoken about Henry Draper a few times. Indeed. Mm. All right. So, uh, yes, all systems go uh, still at this stage for the James Webb Space Telescope and we uh, wait with bated breath for it to get down to business and answer all the questions that you ask us all the time that we can't answer for you. <laughs> yeah, un until the Webb tells us what the answers are. That's right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. All indeed, right. Indeed, indeed. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Now, I've talked before about our sponsor NordVPN and if you don't know what a VPN is then just I'll give you a brief overview but it's a virtual private network it's it's like putting up a brick wall between your computer and the outside world and it's basically designed to secure your internet access secure you from hackers from anybody who'd want your private information whether that's bank details email addresses uh, contact information anything they can use to take advantage of you as an individual for their financial gain uh, it also protects you uh, in public situations like airports if you use airport wi-fi for example it's not secure it's just not secure but you can Open your laptop or your tablet or your phone, um, turn on your Nord VPN, and voila, the brick wall is there to keep you safe and secure while you browse at your leisure. And it doesn't slow you down. In fact, in some cases, Nord VPN makes things a lot faster. Uh, the other thing that's uh, really good about it is you can access their servers through uh, 59 different countries, and that enables you to access geo blocked 
uh, sites uh, or, or content that you can't get through just using your local server. So that's something to think about. Now, there is a special offer as always uh, with this as a Space Nuts listener. So uh, the, the URL you need is nordvpn.com slash space nuts and you use the code space nuts to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan. Uh, plus an additional month for free, and it's completely risk-free. Nord has a 30-day money-back guarantee. So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts using the Space Nuts code to get that discount on your NordVPN plan plus an additional month for free and a bonus gift. Uh, It's completely risk-free. That gift, uh, well, it, it... it's different under every circumstance. So, um, yeah, you, you might get a really nice surprise. So check it out today, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts, the code spacenuts to get that discount and all those additional benefits as a Space Nuts listener. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live right here also. Space Nuts. Now, as I've mentioned many times, we are on social media. So if you'd like to... Uh, become a, a follower of, of Space Nuts on Facebook. We've got an official Space Nuts page there. We've got an official Instagram page. We're on Twitter. Uh, we also have a Space Nuts uh, podcast group where everybody can talk to each other about uh, Space Nuts and other things that are happening in astronomy. Um, people often ask each other questions or they throw a question out there and everybody has a crack at answering it. Uh, it's really good fun. It's a great group of people and uh, you're more than welcome to join it, uh, and that's the Space Nuts podcast group. But um, whatever form of social media that you use, if you do use it, you will find Space Nuts there, and uh, we, uh, yeah, we encourage you to uh, to to join us. Now, um, Fred, uh, I, I was going to get straight into this next subject, but. Um, I, I thought I'd bring up a, a, a little bit of uh, a personal thing because we, in our recent trip, were in Melbourne and we went to a place called uh, Science Works, which is uh, a facility aimed primarily at kids, but I'm a kid at heart. So I, I wanted to go and have a look at this place and it's, it, it, it looks at all sorts of science um, issues from food right through to uh, artificial intelligence to you name it, it's covered in science and astronomy. Uh, And they've got the Melbourne Planetarium there, which is a fantastic facility because um, one of the things that we looked at while we were watching the show in the planetarium was Proxima Centauri. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, But the other thing I stumbled across quite accidentally because I'm a bit of a sticky beak and I went down into the bowels of this facility and I found a telescope and realised that they were uh, restoring the Melbourne telescope. And I sent you a photo of it and you wrote back and said, oh, yes, I know all that. I'm the patron of that. Um, So tell tell us a bit about what's going on. Well, yeah. Oh, look, this is a marvellous story, Andrew. This uh, we, we don't have time to give it justice here, but this telescope was built uh, in 1869 uh, by the British firm of Howard Grubb, and that's the company that I began my career with. Uh, oh, wow. Just about 100 years later, I think. Yes, in fact, just about 100 years later. Uh, so I've got a very close connection with the company that built it, um, it came to uh, Australia, uh, was part of Melbourne Observatory. It was the biggest fully steerable telescope in the world. 
for a long time. It has a 48-inch diameter mirror, which was made of metal. It didn't live up to all its expectations. And in the early 20th century, fell out of use. Um, and eventually, in 1944, I think, the Melbourne Observatory was closed as a research institution. And Mount Stromlo Observatory in Canberra bought the telescope for scrap. Um, but they didn't scrap it. They refurbished it uh, using some of the components uh, and gave it a completely new lease of life. It is. Uh, it worked for best part, well, it was best part of, no, more like 45 years, something like that, mm. was refurbished twice. One of the things it did was demonstrate that um, dark matter can't be lots of black holes and things of that sort. Uh, it's got to be some subatomic particle. Did lots of things. Then, uh, 2003, uh, I think the, can't remember the date, it was around, it was certainly January, uh, the, the observatory burned down in the bushfire wow. of uh, January 2003. The yeah. telescope, effectively, a lot of it melted, believe it or not. It was the dome uh, melted aluminium onto the telescope structure. Uh, the more modern part of it was damaged much more. Um, I wrote about it in my book, Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope, which was published not long after that, and said, you know, this is never going to be recovered. It might end up in a museum. And then uh, in 2008, this gang of people got together and said, we can refurbish this. We can fix it. And that's what's happening. Uh, it's a combination. Let me get it right. Uh, it's a while since I've thought about this. It's Museums Victoria, the Astronomical Society of Victoria, uh, the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, and I think the Bureau of Meteorology is involved as well. So um, fabulous project. Um, the reason I'm its patron, I guess, is partly because, well, let me tell you, when I was a, a youngster, I was still at school, I had a book from the library by Henry King called The History of the Telescope, and it had a picture of this marvellous-looking, fantastic machine in Melbourne. And yeah. I said to myself, I want to use that. It's my favourite telescope, and it has been ever since. So, I might uh, I might get Hugh to put the photo I took of the Melbourne telescope yeah. on our uh, on our yeah. cover page for the podcast. Yeah, because uh, it's a it's a beautiful telescope. It is. It's, it's just lovely. It, it's stunning. Um, it's mm. it, it's uh, yeah. It's it's it was it was pristine mid 19th century engineering unfortunately some of the technology was out of date mechanically it wasn't but yeah. the optics were and that is what conspired to its its demise but it you know it's got this new lease of life the idea is it'll be in a science center in melbourne and people will actually be able to look through it yeah i gee, I, you know i nearly didn't see it i was just walking yeah. along and we were about to come up a set of stairs and i I saw a sign and I, I walked past it and it must have taken 10 or 15 seconds for my brain to go, go Let's back, Andrew, go back. You, <laughs> I, I subliminally read the sign and I went back and I said to Judy, hang on a sec. Yep. And I rushed back down the stairs and went through into this workshop. A little, yes, was. that's right. They've got a, uh, a viewing gallery in the, yeah. the workshop. I was there actually in 2019 when... This all happened. I did a little keynote presentation on it, which it's I was worth very going, excited to, it's to worth do. It's worth going along just to see that. If you're in Melbourne, yeah, the um, yeah. Science Works facilities at Spotswood, it's an easy train journey from central Melbourne uh, and just a great facility. And if you've got kids, they will love it. They will absolutely love it. It's a terrific place. Lovely people too. Even yeah. though they paid me out for not talking enough, which was very, very rare indeed. <laughs> yeah, great now, stuff. Um, 
to the subject of this segment and, um, you know, obviously uh, telescopes have a lot to do with this and, and so do planetariums because that's how we uh, uh, got onto this subject in the first place because I was looking at Proxima Centauri and the Melbourne um, planetarium. Uh, but the news that's uh, out now is that a third Earth-like planet has been found orbiting Proxima Centauri, uh, which is very exciting uh, because it's the closest to us. That's right. It's the closest star to our solar system. Uh, and this it, it, it is uh, an exciting discovery. Uh, there's a nice quote, actually, from um, one of the astronomers who discovered the first planet back in 2016 uh, orbiting Proxima Centauri, uh, a scientist by the name of Guillem Anglada Escudé, who is at the Institute of Space Sciences in Barcelona. And he said, this is showing that the nearest star probably has a very rich planetary system. Because if you find three uh, planets orbiting this dwarf star, which is what it is, um, there's a good chance there are more smaller objects. Mm. Um, and in fact, the newly discovered uh, planet, and it's, um, it, it's actually uh, astronomers, I think, from Portugal, is that right? Uh, yes, University of uh, Porto in Portugal. Uh, they use the Very Large Telescope, uh, which is uh, kind of at the other end of, of the scale from the Great Melbourne Telescope that you went to see. Um, this is for 8.2-metre telescopes at Cerro Paranal in Chile. And one of them has an instrument, I love its name, it's called Espresso. <laughs> and it makes you think of coffee. Uh, and it's an acronym for, wait for it, Andrew, a shell spectrograph for rocky exoplanets and stable spectroscopic observations. There you are. I love uh, it. Yeah, Espresso is a fantastic instrument for discovering planets by the Doppler wobble technique, in which you look for the motion of the parent star as it's pulled out of place slightly by the, by the motion of the planet. So what have they found? Uh, well, an object by the name of Proxima Centauri D, uh, so B, C, and D are the, are the three planets that we now know. Uh, it's, it is actually a sub-Earth. It's not so much a, uh, an Earth-like planet. I've got a feeling it's something like 25% of the mass of the Earth. Is that right? right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a sub-Earth rather than a, uh, an Earth-sized planet. Um, it's... It orbits its parent star every five days, <laughs> so it's whizzing oh. around. And, of course, that's because um, Proxima is a dwarf star, so its planets are much closer in uh, because its gravity is less than the sun, much closer in than the planets of our solar system. Uh, and um, this one, as I said, it, it's, it's actually only um, about 003 3% of the distance that we are from the sun uh, and it takes it five days to go around. Yeah. Um, I think they've referred to it as a provisional planet. They haven't actually yes, that's it right. planet status yet. It's still got, uh, it, it's still got uh, you know, the, the candidate status. Now, mm. um, Proxima B, which is the, uh, I think the first one that was discovered, is actually within Proxima Centauri's habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone. So that could have liquid water on its surface. Um, uh, it's that goes around the star once in eleven days, so it's yeah. it's further out. Um, the problem with Proxima is it's a red dwarf star, so you know even though you might have liquid water on one of the worlds, there are, there are these flares that um, it you know that makes our the flares that our sun 
uh, spits out look pretty pretty tame, uh, right. and they're very high energy uh, events which could fry anything that's trying to trying to grow uh, on Proxima Centauri B. So the and the you know the other end of the scale. Uh, so that's the two pla uh, planets that um, that's B and D, which we've just discussed, which are within you know a few million kilometers of the uh, of the of the star. But the the other one, Proxima Centauri C, is actually a fifty percent further away from Proxima Centauri than we are from the Sun. So it's oh. tw two hundred twenty million kilometers and goes round every every nineteen hundred days. Yeah, you know, so roughly every six. Oh, sorry, it's every five years, every 5.2 yeah. years. So it's it's at the other extreme. Yeah. It's yeah. probably a very cold world, is it? Uh, yeah, it will be because Proxima is, is a dim star and it's mm. sitting there at the distance Mars is from the sun. So, yeah, not much not much heat going out to Proxima Centauri C. Yeah, well, Mars is pretty darn cold, isn't it? It is, yeah, and that's with a sun-like star. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, a very interesting comment from... Uh, uh, Dr. Angelada Escudé, who about, you know, it's probably got this really very rich planetary system. So you can bet your life there's going to be more discoveries. And I bet it's not very long before the James Webb telescope points in that direction. Oh, yeah, we've, we've got to have a peek at our nearest neighbours for sure. Indeed. Mm. All right. Um, so that's uh, a bit of exciting news, although it doesn't sound like this latest uh, planet is uh, at all habitable and may not be able to sustain any life given its um, distance from uh, that red dwarf, but uh, an exciting discovery nonetheless. Very much so. This is the Space Nuts podcast, also uh, a radio show heard on the community radio network around Australia with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, if you have not visited the Space Nuts website uh, of late, please do because there's plenty to see and do on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. We paid millions and millions of fractions of cents to uh, <laughs> buy those URLs. Uh, so please use them. And while you're there, visit the shop because uh, we've got more and more stuff going onto the shop every other day. Uh, from bubble-free stickers to caps to mugs to T-shirts to hoodies, if you want to be that kind of person. The people who wear hoodies, they always look suspicious to me. Um, <laughs> although I've, I, there's spiral notebooks. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff uh, in the Space Nuts shop um, while you're there. So have a look at that. Uh, but plenty of other news and information on the site as well, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Now, Fred, we have some questions, and our first one comes from Andrea. Hello, this is Andrea from Worcester, Massachusetts in the United States. I was listening to your conversation about trying to catch up to a Muamua with a spacecraft and maybe using space sails or giving your spacecraft somehow a boost to get there quickly. I know it takes such a long time to get from um, our galaxy to another, and it made me think, could we ever hitch a ride on a like a like a muamua or another uh, asteroid or comet or something. I don't know if if they travel more quickly than a spacecraft could with the fuel limitations of a spacecraft. Could we somehow have the spacecraft orbit 
an object and kind of hitch along for a ride, kind of see where it goes, and that could help us get further quicker. It's probably an inarticulate way to ask it, but I think you'll get it what I'm talking about. Thanks. <laughs> yep. Yep. We, uh, we do get it. We Thanks, get it. Andrea. <laughs> Lovely to hear from you. And uh, I'm holding a book, if you're watching us on YouTube, it's called 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson. I've read this book. And the reason, it's a science fiction novel, but the reason I bring this one to your attention, Fred, is that uh, in this book, the human race travels around the solar system in hollowed out asteroids. There you go. <laughs> so that's what um, Andrea's asking. Could we somehow harness that energy and use it for long haul travel? Like, um, it, it's, it's certainly worth investigating. Um, there's a problem with the orbital dynamics here um, because uh, if you've got a spacecraft that is, can, can achieve enough velocity to catch up with your, you know, your interstellar visitor, um, you don't need the interstellar visitor because no. it will just follow the same trajectory uh you know it's um and so this I, I think it would be possible to do it but i don't think it offers any advantage it, mm. it, but you'd have to have you know we've talked about the the plan to catch up with umuamua in 2054 yeah. uh which you and i are both looking forward to discussing on space notes <laughs> exactly. at the time um uh, but you know it, that the spacecraft that does that has to be able to achieve the, effectively the same velocity as Umua. In fact, it's a bit worse than that because it's got to be going faster than Umuamua to catch it up at all. Otherwise, it'll never get to it. Mm. So you're already ahead, if I can put it that way, of the spacecraft. I wonder if you, you could you could perhaps um, achieve something by if you could hitch a ride on one of these things on its way in um where you know the you're you're heading out to to meet this thing uh and then but you've then got the problem of a spacecraft that's going in the wrong direction you've still got the problem is you've still got to accelerate your spacecraft yeah. to have the same speed as umuamua or whatever it is in order to to hitch a ride with it uh and since you're doing that, you might as well forget about Oumuamua and just use your spacecraft. It will be a lot more convenient. We have shown that we can do it with some recent asteroidal intercepts. Yes, that's and, right. Yeah, you know, Some of them went well, some of them didn't. These were all in the solar uh, system, of course. They were, they were, yeah, they were, so, they were yeah. within our solar system. Uh, yeah. Andrea's talking about hitching a ride to another galaxy or something via Oumuamua or you know, any you know, number of future uh, visitors that we might have. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I see your point. We'd have to go to a lot of work and effort to catch it. And by the time we'd achieved that, what would be the point of landing on it yeah. and using its velocity yeah. when we're already doing it? Unless you needed... So, unless, we, unless we wanted to save on fuel. But you'd need to be able to no, get it, off at some stage to hit a destination because yeah. there's no guarantee it's going to get where you Wait, want, want to go. to go. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. That could be a problem. I guess the only thing, you know, the only... Um, a real motivation for doing that would be if the object had resources that you wanted to exploit, yeah. uh, digging up its precious metals or whatever, 
but they're no good to you if you're being carried out of the solar system at 23 kilometers per second. Um, and you'd also have to consider what future dangers it might put you yeah. in. Yeah. If, you know, yeah. Uh, but it would have to travel a long way to reach that point, I imagine. So, um, yeah. So the moral, moral of the story is stay away from interstellar objects. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's. Um, thanks, Andrea. Love, lovely. Yeah, great question. Great really question. great Very question. Very good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, uh, Ralph uh, has sent us a question, Fred, and uh, he's uh, asking uh, you about uh, help with his telescope. Apparently he's having some issues. Hey guys, Ralph from California again. I have a couple questions about what uh, Dr. Fred Watson spoke on, which was uh, aperture fever, which I got. I ended up with a light bucket, a Coulter 13 and a 0.1 inch uh, Dobsonian telescope, the tube. I just got the optics off of eBay. I renovated the thing, put it all back together. And I'm having a heck of a time collimating it. I wonder if Fred had any tips on that. Maybe I need a new primary mirror cell. Not sure. The second question was around binoculars. Does this is so? These are hardware questions. Any tips on the best way to use binoculars? I usually start off doing the general focus with my left eye, right eye closed, and then I use that right eye secondary focus to do the right eye and then hope for the best. Thanks, guys. Love the podcast, as always. Keep it up, nuts. <laughs> Thank you, Ralph. Uh, great question. Uh, yeah. Sounds like he's got a couple of issues, though. Yeah. So um, the, what we call collimating telescopes, it means getting all the optics aligned. And with, a yes, a Dobsonian telescope, which is whose optical system is what we call a Newtonian, it's a, a dished mirror, a large dished mirror, and then near its focus there is this uh, flat mirror which is at 45 degrees to the axis of the dish mirror and sends the light out the side, and that's where you put the eyepiece. And so yeah. the trick is to get the, the main mirror so that its, its axis is pointing right directly into the flat mirror and your eyepiece. Um, and the way to do that, usually the, the, the way is to, 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 to look at a star image under high magnification, and there'll be rings around the star image if you've got good conditions, uh, which will be distorted if the thing is out of alignment. Now, the the problem is um, you want. Um, Ralph mentioned the mirror cell. That's the basically the casing in which the mirror itself sits, and they usually have uh, bolts on the back, screws on the back, or adjusting screws, if you like, so that you, you you screw it in one side and it tilts the mirror very slightly. Screw it back and it tilts it the other way. Now, yeah. if they are conveniently placed and if they're free to move and not seized up then it's a relatively straightforward process but if you've got something old and beaten up and many of these things are um, then it might take some patience and quite a lot of wd-40 to free it up and things <laughs> of that sort do they have wd-40 in the united states i, I don't know I, I i guess they might do um, they'll yeah. certainly have their e equivalent uh yeah. You know, you know why they call it WD forty. <laughs> no, why? Because it was the fortieth variation of the formula, and it's the one they got right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it was, they had forty attempts at coming up with the formula for WD forty. Uh, so if they got it right on WD thirty nine, well, that's probably what it would have been called. <laughs> but what does the WD stand for? I can't remember. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, now I have to look it up. 
Well, I'll look it up while you answer his question about binoculars. Yeah, all right. Yes, that's a good idea. Um, so, uh, and what Ralph said about the adjustment of binoculars is is right. That's the way to do it. Um, I, I, I have a weakness for binoculars, as you know, Andrew, uh, particularly historic ones. In fact, I have nearly 200 in my collection, which is embarrassing because I've got anywhere to put them. Uh, <laughs> and they range in size from tiny miniature ones to... Uh, the World War II Japanese battleship binoculars, which have got five, oh, wow. five inch lenses at the front, they're colossal things. Anyway, that's notwithstanding. Um, but I do, I love using binoculars because uh, particularly uh, in the, the neighbours don't appreciate it. Well, but yeah. yeah, we've got to be careful, that's right. Um, uh, partly because uh, at night, of course, they, they, they let you use two eyes to look at whatever the objects are that you're looking at. Uh, in, in the landscape, it, they're lovely because they bring out the depth perception. If you've got stereoscopic vision in your eyes, reasonably, uh, you know, reasonably uh, uh, proficient. Um, so, but the technique with what are called centre-focus binoculars uh, is indeed to close your right eye. In fact, what um, specialists recommend is that you don't close your right eye, that you cover up the lens on the right-hand side, leave your eye open, because the act of closing the eye changes your adjustment a little bit. Mm. So you, you cover up the lens on the right side, uh, do the adjustment for your left eye, and then you turn the what's called the diopter adjustment on the right-hand side to bring the two into focus. Now, the pitfall with that is sometimes binoculars are a bit worn, and when you turn the, when you turn the adjustment on your right eye, I'm doing it, you can see here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're on YouTube, uh, when you turn that adjustment, then you disturb the adjustment of the other side, uh, just because there's there's a bit of wear in it. Uh, and for that reason, I actually prefer, although they're they're not so easy to get these days, I prefer what are called individual focus binoculars, where each eyepiece focuses separately. Um, it's not so good if you want to if you you know if you're looking at sports or something like that where you need to change focus quickly and often they're inconvenient mm. but for sort of serious looking at the landscape or the sky uh, the individual focus binoculars are better but as i said they're not that easy to get hold of these days yeah uh wd stands for water displacement there you go we should uh, have so guessed the 40, 40th version of the water displacing formula 40th recipe yeah it's pure it's a, it, for those who don't know what we're talking about it's a it's a spray can of um stuff that Oh, look, it, it does all sorts it, it of things. It frees up things, stops to, them rusting. Yeah, yeah to <laughs> de-rusting de bolts. It does all sorts of amazing stuff. It's it's good gear, actually. It's really good, very handy stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, water displacement 40 is there what it was. There you go. There you go. Hopefully, Ralph, your telescopic and binocular questions have been resolved or issues. Um, let us know how you go with getting that Dobsonian work. Yeah, be good. Um, but... Yeah, I can understand his frustration with um, using a, a telescope or binoculars because I've found with mine the first few times I used it, I I, I tried looking through the, the eyepiece with both eyes open and that doesn't work, just doesn't work, not for me anyway. But if you close an eye, that's not that's not advised. Mm, that's right. So they suggest you cover the eye you're not using so you can, and I find it very hard to do that. I'm not used to it yet. But I'm, I'm guessing I'll get yeah. used to it sooner do you, or later. Do you use yours with um, 
uh, an eyepiece uh, prism which lets you look down into it rather than straining to look up. I can show you, Fred. Yeah. <laughs> Drew's going to show me. There you are. So it's got the diagonal. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's at 45 degrees. I prefer yeah. the 90 degree version. Because I haven't it, got that. No, it means you're looking directly downwards. And if you're, you've got a dark night, you're, it's a lot easier to keep one eye open because you're looking at the dark background, you're looking at the ground, unless it's yeah. moonlit or something. But the other issue which you can do, you know, you travel uh, business class on on uh, Qantas very frequently. I know they have I, very. We, we've <laughs> we've done it once by accident. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have very good face masks, and if you put one of those on and just uh, tilt it so that it's only covering one eye, you look oh. you look completely mad. But you know, and your wife will think you've lost it completely. Uh, but it does the trick. It means you can keep no. your eye open not, and not see anything. She won't go outside while I've got a telescope. She... <laughs> That's just too weird for her. There you go. Yeah, especially <laughs> if you've got one. Right. Covered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ralph. And, uh, yeah, as I said, let us know how you go. Uh, one final question. We're going to throw in a bonus question this week. This one comes from Peter. This is a what if. I, I love these kinds of questions. Here we go. Hi, Andrew and Fred. Uh, my name's Peter and I'm from the Sunshine Coast, Queensland. Uh, I'm a long-time listener, so I've got a handful of questions I'd like to ask eventually. But I'm a first-time caller, so I thought I'd start with an icebreaker question. Uh, and my question is, if you could go back to any point in the Earth's history to witness an astronomical, an astronomical event, uh, what would it be? When was it? And why? Uh, I imagine there's, a, there's things that researchers have found, uh, but only found trace evidence, and they haven't got all the pieces of the puzzle. So going back might reveal some some of the mysteries. Um, or maybe there's an event just so spectacular you have to see it with your own eyes. Uh, anyway, that's my question. I hope it's uh, a bit of a break from some of the black hole and uh, dark matter <laughs> questions that you get. Um, love the show. And uh, you will hear from me again with some of my other questions. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Peter. I love the questions. Uh, I love the idea of... of putting us in these situations. I really enjoy these kinds of scenarios. Uh, can I go first? Yeah, sure. Because yours will be really intelligent. <laughs> I bet I bet you and I choose the same one, actually. Or inspiring. <laughs> I've actually had a couple of thoughts. Um, my As soon as I heard that question when I first listened through all the questions that have come in this week, uh, my first thought was Tunguska. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I think I'd love to go back and just see what happened. I want to know what happened. In, so, in 1909, uh, yeah, hmm? back in 1909. Yes, yeah, I think that would be because it happened in such a remote area. Hardly yeah. anybody saw it. Yeah. I don't think there were many witnesses at all. They just, they just found the evidence of it later, which was just you know, hundreds of square miles of flattened forest. I would love to see that. I know they've sort of seen it in Russia in recent times. Um, but uh, Chelyabinsk, uh, but uh, I, I, I think Tunguska for me is, is the event I would like to witness uh, just so I can understand the magnitude of such, such power and ferocity. Um, on a lighter note, Roswell. <laughs> uh, the Roswell incident. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that, you might be waiting a long time for that because I don't think anything <laughs> happened. <laughs> No, that's great. That's really mm. good. Uh, what about you? Fred? Yeah, look. Um, so some of the you know the events 
um, that you think about would be marvellous to see, like, you know, the significant events, like the formation of the Earth. But that took 100 million years. It's not the kind of thing you could sit and watch and be patient with. Um, I don't know. I reckon if you if we had if we could go back in time, you could, we could go to the it very up. beginning and hit fast forward. You fast forward, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But my choice would be actually something similar to yours because what you want is something that's dramatic and happens in the blink of an eye. And as long as I could be in a safe capsule somewhere, I would love to see the uh, the impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. Oh, uh, yes. To, to take myself to the region of Chicxulub in, in uh, Mexico, sit on the sidelines, just wait a few minutes uh, while all these dinosaurs chew around and see what happened. Because, yeah. yeah, it would have been quite spectacular. It would have been extraordinary. Yeah, I didn't think of that one. I don't know why, but, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. That's a ripper. <laughs> well, we both, we both went for impact. Neither of us yep. said... Uh, witness a supernova explosion or the formation of a black hole or the collision of two black holes. We didn't say all that. We just want to see the no. impact. <laughs> no, I, th- I think he was probably, well, I, I guess he means anything in, in yeah. the history of the universe, but I was sort of keeping it local. Me, but me I, did think, I did think of a supernova because they have uh, had eyewitness accounts written in history about some of those. Yes, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, but, the Chinese witnessed a big one. and But um, not from close up. no. No, <laughs> that would not be advised. No, not at all. Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, lovely question. I, I think that would be a great discussion question on the uh, Space Nuts podcast group as well if you wanted to get on there and, and pose the question and see what people came up with. I'm sure everyone has their own ideas as to what they'd love to see in the history of the universe if they could go back in time and witness it. Uh, and um, if you do have questions for us, of course, you know what to do. You go to our website and you click on the um, on the thing on the right that tells you, um, you know, to record a question or you go to the AMA tab because that's where it all happens. And you can also go uh, old school and send us an email with a text question. So um, that's on the AMA tab or you can go on the button on the right that says send us your voice message. That's how it works. If you've got a device with a microphone, if it's a, a tablet or a phone or a desktop or a laptop with a microphone in it, you can send us an audio question. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. People are getting much better at that. Uh, that brings us to the very end of another episode. Fred, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Andrew. Good to see you, as always, and we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. That is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and uh, he'll be joining us again next week on the next episode, coincidentally. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks so much for your company. We'll catch you again next time. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.